This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and FPC Golfport on YouTube. You know, for a number of decades, Christian counselors, when they were talking to people, they'd ask them questions to try to understand what's going on. If you open up the hood of people's lives, there's all manner of different things going on. And so you ask questions to try to draw some of that out. Now, most of the questions that are asked are pretty straightforward. You have someone come in and sit with you and you ask, well, how are things going at home? How about work? How are things going at work? And again, you'll start to learn just by listening something about the people's habits and priorities and the like. With that said, for a number of decades, there was a particular question that you would ask if you wanted to understand someone's faith life, how they were doing matters of faith, what their spiritual condition was. There was one particular question that was asked by Christian counselors, and that is, tell me, tell me about your church life. We've talked about your work life, your professional life. We've talked about your family life. Tell me about your church life. Church life in this context is a euphemism for your overall spiritual condition. You ask someone about their church life, what you're really asking is how are they doing in matters of faith? Now, once upon a time, that was a more normative question. It really isn't anymore. Instead, you hear something different. You'll hear a question asked, how is your spiritual walk? Now, what do you think the distinction is? between asking someone about their church life and asking about their Christian walk. Well, the distinction is that one of those two things occurs in community with others. When you think of church life, you think of one's engagement, not only in scripture and not only in prayer, but also with a body of believers. Both are appropriate phrases. However, they emphasize different things. A number of years back, this would have been maybe 2010. This was in my first church in Wyoming. Our family was invited to an orchestra performance. There is orchestras in Wyoming, and there was a good one that we had a member of in our church family. And I began to realize that people who are good at instruments, they don't just trade them around, but you get really good on one specific instrument, and that's what you play. And if you play well enough, then you can play at the orchestra level. Well, the individual in our church, this lady who had an instrument she played, the instrument was called the bassoon. Does anyone know what a bassoon is? Well, you got better musical training than I do. I still don't know. I mean, I heard it play, but I still don't have any idea what the bassoon is. I can sort of picture it. I mean, I Googled it for these purposes. But I didn't know what the sound was. So I asked her kind of a silly question. Once I realized, wait a second, in our church, we have someone that's like orchestra level skill set. I thought, oh my goodness. So I asked her, I said, on some Sunday coming up, do you think you could play like a bassoon solo for us? And she kind of looked at me, you know, dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> That, that really wasn't the way it works. You don't go to hear someone play the bassoon any more than you'd go to a tuba soloist or an oboe or something. There are certain instruments that work well in concert with other instruments, but in of themselves don't have the same effect. Well, the same is true with believers. You and I reach our best notes. We contribute to the best overall kingdom sound when our voices and our efforts occur hand-in-hand, arm-in-arm, with other believers, in concert with others. We're not spiritual soloists, so to speak, but we're supposed to be accompanists, accompanists that work one with another. Now, this is not just conjecture. It is the overt teaching of today's text, and let's go ahead and bear that out now. I'm going to start with verses 38 through 41, and let's work our way through the balance as we usually do. Okay, verse 38 Peter is speaking to many there on the hillside, and he's trying to sow seeds of repentance to draw people into the faith. So verse 38. 
that Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words, he testified, he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. All right. Let's remind ourselves when this is happening. Sometimes we open the book and we look at a passage and we don't remember the context. So when is this happening? Well, by the time you get to chapter 2 of Acts, two main things have already happened in the life of the early church. The first one is this. Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected. That's number one. And number two, something happened in Acts chapter 1. We call it the what? The ascension. Jesus went up into heaven. So you have Jesus, he's risen, he's seen everybody for 40 days, people have seen him, there's eyewitnesses, this guy is alive, he's taught and spoke, and Acts chapter 1, whoop, he goes up into heaven. So, Acts chapter 2, where are we at? Well, we are truly, at this point, at the very infancy, the infancy stage of the early church. This is a church that's so young at this point, in fact, that it's still being led by the original apostles. Now, when we look at verses 38 and 41, this is the last part of a sermon that the Apostle Paul had given in order to point people to Jesus. And he tells them, he says, you look at the world around you. Things are bad. And I entreat you to be saved from this perverse generation. It isn't just our generation where things are weird and wild and wacky. But even in the first century, they could look around and say things are bad. So be saved out from under them. But as you'll notice, if you were to read all of Acts chapter 2... Uh, Peter not only entreats people to repent and be saved, but he's really direct about the problem. The problem that we have is sin. He doesn't tell the people that Jesus came to give you your best life now and the like. He says, you have a real problem. The problem is that you're sinners and the wages of that sin is death. Repent. Be saved. Come out from this perverse generation. So he identifies the problem, but he also points to Jesus Christ repeatedly. And he's talking to some of those who are among the group who crucified him. He's reminding them in Acts chapter 2, using really direct language, that y'all did this. You took the Son of Man, the Son of God, you nailed him to a cross, you killed him. However, the good news for you is this, that the same one who you crucified even now extends to you forgiveness. So that's what he's doing in Acts chapter 2. He's very direct. He doesn't pull any punches. He just tells them the unvarnished truth. And as a result of telling people the truth, what happens? Well, we see in verse 41 that hearts are changed. Why? Because the truth, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. If we have the will and good sense to proclaim it. Well, Peter did. He speaks to people. He says, this is the truth. And God uses what he says, the preaching of the word, to convert and change their hearts. It's very straightforward what he did. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't dressed up. But it was effective. Now that brings us to the first observation of something they did right in the early church, which every church of any generation must also do, and that is preach the word. Not preach things about the word or the side of the word or what I might think about the word so much as opening the book and saying, thus saith the Lord. This is sound teaching, sound doctrine, and it is the first hallmark of a healthy church. Okay, let's look at verses 42 and 43. And they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, 
and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All right, so thousands have been converted. The church is growing. It's no longer a small contingent hanging out in the upper room. It's now beginning to grow. And here, verses 42 and 43, we see what that looked like thereafter. You see, sometimes revivalists have held revivals over the years, you know, walk down the sawdust trail, you know, say the words, do the sinner's prayer, what have you, and then people go out and they live just as heathen as they did before. Well, here in a healthy church setting, what happened is that people heard the word, they responded to the word, and then they engaged with the institution that God has given to us to help disciple and grow us and sanctify us, and that is a church family. In verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the very same things that Peter taught them, but also in fellowship, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread. This can be the Lord's table. It often is referred to in that way. It can also just be they sat down and enjoyed good meals together. Then fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All right, as I've said already a couple times, there's three practices that are identified in these verses that formed the basis of the church's growth in the first century, and that was good doctrine, there was fellowship, and there was prayer. These are the hallmarks that Peter identifies. We don't have to guess. We don't have to come up with alliteration and try to come up with all sorts of neat ways to describe things that God used to grow the early church. You just have to look at these verses and say, how did the church grow? Multiple times it says thousands were being added. The church is growing daily, and the things, the basis by which that church grew, are described as doctrine, fellowship, and prayer. Now, let me mention one or two other things about doctrine before we talk about fellowship and prayer. The word doctrine, when you hear it, how does it sound on the ear? Do you like that word doctrine? Probably not. Why? Because you've heard the word indoctrinated. No one wants to be indoctrinated per se, and so the word doctrine itself, it sounds stuffy, it sounds old. No, doctrine is not that. Doctrine is a good word, it's a biblical word, and it's a word that speaks to the systematic teaching that this book conveys. However, in Peter's day, and absolutely in our day, there's a tendency to take doctrine and put it off to the side, put it over here, and emphasize other things, especially those things that we can all agree upon, right? To emphasize things that we all like. Now, number one among the things that are emphasized in our own culture is emotion. Emotion is almost an idol unto itself. What you know about God, what you know about God has been subjugated to how you feel about it, or how you feel about church, or how you feel about the music, or what have you. The result of an overemphasis on emotion and feelings instead of truth, theology, doctrine, and the like, is that you have an evangelical church culture in which most professing Christians don't have a prayer in the dark of naming the Ten Commandments, but, but they know what they like and what makes them feel, feel good. Well, I could belabor that point. I won't for our sakes, but I will say this, that the doctrine was one of the hallmarks here. Not emotion. Doctrine was one of the hallmarks in the early church, and the church was steadfast in their study of it. That's what we see in verse 42. Steadfast. Steadfast in their study of what the Bible has to say. Now, what's the second hallmark that we see in verse 42? Well, it's this word, fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? Well, fellowship actually comes from a Greek word. It implies not only the shared doctrine, but also implies shared lives, shared activities. Fellowship literally suggests two people standing together, arms around each other, so to speak. 
not only with some common assent to the things they believe to be true, but with some common practice and how they're applied and lived out. Fellowship. In verse 42, we see that people were steadfast in fellowship, not selective, not I like the Bible and theology and the preaching or this or that, but I'm going to keep all the other stuff off to the perimeter. I don't have the time or desire to engage in these things. No, they were steadfast in their fellowship. Again, this isn't conjecture. It's not speculation. This is overt teaching of verse 42. It's also the overt teaching of every epistle. Every epistle that Paul ever penned, they all described a church that comes together, that is with one another, where there's unity and engagement, where there's shared lives and shared interactions. That's a repeated teaching throughout all the epistles, that Christians live their lives together and that their growth and their discipleship and their sanctification occurs best in harmony with other believers, not in isolation. As we said before, a single instrument does not a concert make. In the same way, a Christian going out on a hill somewhere thinking, I'm going to be holy on my own, and I don't need any of the rest of this stuff, any of the rest of church, church officers, the sacraments and the like, I don't really need that. That's for other people. Wrong. That's not biblical. Doug Lipscomb earlier, he read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and a text that speaks directly to these matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just as a body, though one, one body, has many parts, just I have many fingers on one hand, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christians. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Scripture uses language like the parts of a body, fingers and eyes and noses and ears and like, to say, look, we're meant to complement one another. You can't just take off the nose and go set it over there. Every part is meant to function in concert with the other parts. It's true in anatomy. It's true in a church. And so we're harming ourselves when we do the equivalent of lopping off the nose and thinking that we can go off and be holy and do our own thing over there. And where we keep everything else and everyone else off to the side. Scripture tells us we're members of one another to the degree our individual circumstance allows. So the degree our individual situation permits. Some people's health concerns do not permit this, but we are called to the degree that we are able to fellowship, to fellowship with other believers. All right, so we've talked a little bit about the first two items. We talked about doctrine, we talked about fellowship. The third hallmark that we see that was manifest in the early church and which we should seek to apply to the greatest extent we can in the modern church is this, prayer. Back in the Old Testament, there was a famous prophet. There was a lot of famous prophets, but the one I'm thinking about is the man named Elijah. In the book of James, years later, centuries later, James described Elijah. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So he's flesh and blood, just like you, just like me. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then, then he prayed again. And then the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. You know, Elijah is one of the most effective men in the entirety of Scripture. One of the most effective believers of all time. With that said, the effectiveness of Elijah's entire ministry can be boiled down to just two words. He prayed. Elijah, James is saying, he's just like us. This is not a demigod. No. 
James says, look, this guy was like you. He was like me. He was a man of flesh and blood. He'd given to the weaknesses that we have. You remember him curling up crying under a broom tree one day because he couldn't figure life out? Elijah was like us. And yet, Elijah did something that maybe we have trouble doing, or at least doing regularly, and having confidence in it as we do it, and that is he prayed. He prayed. And God responded. In the same way, verse 42 of today's text identifies prayer as a key component in the early church. If you go a couple chapters later in, in Acts, you'll see that prayer was the basis by which when the saints came together and prayed, the entire building shook. We underestimate prayer so, so much. Even we who theologically know better. We underestimate the value and necessity of prayer. Do you know what the hardest ministry to start in a church is? The prayer meeting. The prayer meeting. However, there are few ministries that are as productive in the short, mid, and long term. Elijah, let's return him just for a moment. Think about what he was praying about. Think about what this guy, this man of flesh and blood, was praying about. Elijah asked God, in order to deal with Ahab and Jezebel and the wicked people, he says, God, God, withhold your favor. God, withhold the reins. He asked God to change the weather system of the entire planet for over a year and a half. And guess what? God did it. Now, was this part of God's grand plan all in all? Yes, absolutely. And yet, he unfolds prayers into what he does. That was the case for Elijah. He folded just the boldest prayer you can imagine. You know, and occasionally, occasionally I've been driving like long distance. I say, dear God, don't let it rain while I'm driving ahead. Occasionally I've had just enough faith to ask God to not let me hydroplane in the next hours. I'm trying to get to the airport or whatever. Occasionally I've had that kind of faith. But the sort of faith that prays on this scale, it sounds like it's beyond us. But it's not. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. In that sense, he had no advantage that you don't have when you approach the throne of your maker. If he had any advantage, it was this. He believed some of the very things that he talked about. He believed strongly in regards to prayer. You and I believe matters of faith. We believe doctrine and theology. But he believed that prayer could make this sort of change. And these are the sort of bold, strong prayers that God not only asks us to take to him, but which he loves to validate. All right, let's look at verses 44 and 45. Now, all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. You know, in John 13, Jesus made a famous statement about how the world would learn to know the Christians, how they will know us. Do you remember what he said? What Jesus said was the means, the way by which the world would know Christians? What was it? They'll know us by our love. They'll know us by our love, specifically our love for one another, specifically by the degree to which we show compassion and empathy and grace to one another as brothers and sisters should. The world looks at that, and that's different, different than what you see in the cutthroat world around us. The world looks at that and says, that's different. The way they interact one with another, the way they build one another up, the way they come along beside each other when they're hurting, the way they celebrate each other's lives, the way they grieve with those who are grieving. That's different. They'll know, they'll know us by our love. John didn't say we'd be known by our love for theology, although we love theology. He didn't even say we'd be known by our love for the Bible, although we love the Bible. He says the hallmark, the hallmark that the world will notice 
is when you love one another in a visible way. And you prioritize that love and the camaraderie that comes with it. That's a far greater witness than you know. When you tell people you're going to church, and tell people on Sunday, I'm in church. When you tell people on Wednesday, I've got to get off to church. When you say to someone, I'm off to Bible study, what have you, that's a bigger witness than you know. Don't undervalue it. John says Christians are known by love for one another. Our love for Jesus bears fruit, and our love for the people to our left and to our right this morning. And in verses 44 and 45, these relationships, they're not shallow. The main teaching in verses 44 and 45 is this, that the relationships that we're supposed to have with one another, it's not just, you know, how are you today, sir? Very good, I thank you. It's something more than that. In verses 44 and 45, we see a sacrificial love, loving others to the degree that when we sense there's a need that they have in the body of faith, that we see, how can I help? How can I assist? How can I rush in and help take care of this problem? Now, is this text advocating some sort of communal living or socialism or fiscal paradigm? No, that's not the case. But what it is telling you and I as Christians is that we are to hold that which God has given us loosely and disperse it often to the people God has put us into community with. All right, let's look at our final verses now, verses 46 and 47. Verse 46. So continuing daily continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, there are certain things, certain activities that we do in intervals in life. How often are we supposed to go to the dentist? Every, every six months? Okay, every six months. Do we all do that? No, there's things we're supposed to do at intervals. We're supposed to get our eyes checked. We're supposed to go to the dentist. We're supposed to go to the doctor. We're supposed to do things at different intervals. There's other things we do at even closer intervals, such as going to work or what have you. There's things we do that we compartmentalize. And we say, this is the time frame that is allotted for this particular activity. With that said, we also do that with regards to church. We compartmentalize it into a particular time. Now, something that North American evangelical Christianity has taught us that is not the teaching of Scripture is this, that the only time you need to worry about church is one hour on Sunday mornings. That's a byproduct of North American evangelical 21st century Christianity. It is not the teaching of Scripture. What is the teaching of Scripture? What did I just read? Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate food with simplicity of heart and praised God, had favor among the people. You don't see in the early church, at the very time when thousands are being added daily, you don't see this compartmentalization where you say, as long as I hit church three out of four Sundays for one hour on Sunday morning, that's sufficient. The people who have sold that to you are not the people who wrote this book. They're people in a modern context preaching modern priorities. The priorities of Scripture suggest this, that you and I are meant to live out our faith in the context that we have regular interactions. Whether it's every day is beside the point. But our interactions are consistent, ongoing, and they occur at intervals other than just Sunday morning. Continuing daily, with one accord in the temple, bringing bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Verse 46 does not describe the sort of compartmentalized faith that we have may have bought into at some point. Now, I'm not going to belabor that point, but as I said before, I'll labor it just long enough. As a Christian, it may be time for you to get more involved. 
and the lives of the people in this very room. As a Christian, maybe time for you to get more involved in what you call church life. From breaking bread from house to house, we do that in community groups. We have two community groups meeting this very day. They're examples of how we take the faith and the heart and the relationships that we have for this hour and work them outwards into the week. This very afternoon, we've got a couple of these meetings. Paula, what did she say? We have the Bible study starting up in Hebrews, women's Bible study. We've got a men's Bible study going on in Hebrews roughly the same time. There's Bible studies on Monday evening in John. We've got men's breakfast once a month, the third Saturday of each month. We've got this next Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, we're starting up our Wednesday night activities. Guess what they involve in the gym? Breaking bread together, sharing a meal, fellowshipping one with another, sitting down, learning a little bit about the people that we meet with on Sunday mornings, engaging with them, praying for them, sharing a meal, and then coming into the sanctuary and learning God's word. My encouragement and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say this and put you to the point of a decision, but my encouragement is take that stuff seriously. Set aside, just look at the time ahead of you and say, I'm going to set aside one more hour a week than I previously had, be it for a Sunday school. If you have not engaged in Sunday school, you're missing an opportunity by which we pray for one another, we study God's word, there's fellowship and activities. Sunday school, Wednesday nights, Bible studies, men's breakfast, what have you. My strong encouragement is if you see your life having bought into a paradigm that is not what we see in Acts chapter 2, then take action this week, this month, this fall to correct. Engage more. There's people who need you, and you need people. There's giftedness that you uniquely have that can be of value to people within the church. If you're introverted, I get that. And yet, the mandate is not just for the, the social butterflies. It's for all of us to find ways to engage. And when the world sees that level of engagement and participation, when the world sees it, there's something good going on by which people are being built up, not just in their understanding of what the Word says, but how to apply it collectively and then to work it out in the world around them. The world sees that one person at a time, one family at a time, one church at a time, and it has that effect. And guess what? This is the basis by which, in Acts chapter 2, the church grew. The basis by which people were saved. Because that's what we see in verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And it yokes that outcome to these other three points we've made about doctrine, fellowship, and prayer. Let me close with a few thoughts. Jesus Christ is still in the salvation business. Jesus Christ is still in the salvation business. In Acts 2, we stand back and go, wow! Oh my, 3,000 were added to the kingdom on the basis of teaching the truth and fellowshipping with one another. Wow, that's great for them, but he must do something different now. Jesus is still in the salvation business. I'll bet you there's someone in your life right now, and it probably comes to mind even as I say these words, someone in your life who needs Jesus. I bet there's a coworker, there's a neighbor, there's a relative, a friend, someone who needs Jesus. Now, there may be someone in your own particular case who is heavy upon your heart. Maybe it's someone that you love dearly. This person needs Jesus. For most of us, several people might fill that description. Well, if that's true for you, if there's someone you're praying about, something you're worried about, someone you're concerned about, then good news. Jesus is still in the saving business. His hands are not tied. His arm has not grown short. Jesus is every bit and as much in the saving business, the business of salvation, as he was in Acts chapter 2. And guess what? He loves to respond to our prayers and faith for those that we're concerned about. 
God loves to validate the prayer you have for someone that is lost. He loves to validate that by acting in the way that only he can act. He enfolds our prayers in his great work of salvation. It is he alone who changes hearts and draws people to himself. And yet he enfolds your prayers, my prayers, and our collective efforts to reach out to them, to bring them into the kingdom. He uses these things to this great and glorious outcome. So this morning, this week, don't give up. If there's someone who seems like they're so far gone or they're so old or they're at death's door or what have you, don't give up. And don't be quiet either. Dear heavens, if God has put someone on your heart, if God has uniquely put someone on your heart that needs to know the Lord, then have the willingness to take that name and bring it to the body that we might pray for them. That takes some courage. It also demonstrates great love. When you say, I've got a friend, a neighbor, a relative, someone close to me. Oh, church, would you come alongside me in prayers on behalf of this person that God has laid on my heart? This is one of the many benefits that comes when we come together. This fall, my encouragement, there's someone on your heart that you know desperately needs to know Jesus. Among the many things you can do to be God's hands and words into that situation, you can also pray for them and invite us to. I promise you, you give me a name for someone to pray for, I will pray for them. And there's other men, there's elders, there's deacons, there's other individuals, the WLT, the congregation as a whole that might do the same. Come on Wednesday night as we pray for people. Come to Sunday school and put that name forward. I'll close with one. I'll close with one that I'll ask you to pray for this week. It's a familiar name, but I want you to take it to heart, and I want you to lift this individual up for prayer. Every week for the past number of months, including what Doug Lipscomb said earlier, we are praying for the father of someone in this room that we love dearly, Amanda Kelly's father, Daryl Flurry. So needs to know Jesus. Pray. Be used this week on behalf of Amanda, on her dad, and the glory of God to lift up this man's name that God might act and trust that this is the means by which the church grows. Very basic, humble, essential, ordinary means are the ways he grows his church. This week, this month, this fall, we'll pray for Daryl, we'll pray for others. That God might act, that he might be glorified and others might be drawn to him, utilizing the church as his human instrumentation here on earth to affect it. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.